September the 6th, Sunday. About nine o'clock, some natives brought in a young lad, aged about 16 years, whose right hand was cut off at the wrist. Awful story. I don't know what language they spoke to Lorige Kesman. Probably Lingala, I don't know. Ezalaki kozwa tango mususu mikolozomi potozwa ba... What fascinated me about Casement was his contradictions. Absolute staunch nationalist, but who had worked for the empire. A ferociously masculine man, but his masculinity was expressed in gay ways. red-blooded man Stand for what's right, always oft as I can We went to Chile to buy a car and Paddy wrote a cheque and the garage owner said, I can't take your cheque. He didn't want to take a cheque from a casement. Banner Strand, near Tralee, County Kerry. A hundred years ago, Roger Casement washed up here. In prison months later, awaiting his execution, he wrote that the best thing he had done in his life was in Congo. Up in those lonely Congo forests, I found myself, the incorrigible Irishman. My name is Colin Murphy. I'm driving up the Dublin-Belfast road at the moment, and I've long had a particular interest in Roger Casement. I was working in Angola in Southern Africa as an aid worker. Anyway, soon after I arrived, I found myself recuperating from malaria in the house that the charity leased. And I was reading a book there called King Leopold's Ghost, which tells the story of effectively a genocide that had taken place in Congo a century earlier. And in that, there was this figure, and he was Roger Casement. Every Irish person of my generation and older grew up with some sense of Casement as one of the Patriot dead, and probably some sense of, oh, he's the guy with the diaries, and wasn't he gay, and, or was he gay, or were the diaries forged, or whatever, and nothing else. And then I just discovered, reading this book, that he'd had this whole career in Africa, this place near to where I was working. I went to Africa as a boy, strong, thin, clean-limbed and very sound. I had an exceptionally healthy and vigorous constitution. All of the people remembering Casement say things like, oh, he, he would just walk off into the jungle and come back a month later, slightly thinner and unshaven, but, you know, and say sort of, jolly fine walk I had, you know, and he seemed like this sort of Victorian Superman. I am the only white man alive, I think, who ever swam the Ankissi River, full of crocodiles. There was this Irishman, who's one of the most famous Irishmen in history, who had this massive career in human rights and humanitarian action that is almost unknown in Ireland. And 
I just wanted to know more about him. To find out more about Roger Casement, I've come to the opposite end of the island to Ballastrand. This is near Bally Castle on the Antrim coast, looking out on Rathlin Island. They're visible in the, well, through the mist. We're looking almost due north, straight out in front of the house here, yeah. I'm at a big old country house, set in its own land. And we now have moved from the Georgian part of the house to the Victorian part. Roger Casement's parents both died when he was a child, and he came to this house to live with cousins. John Casement, he built this part of the house. Patrick Casement, the current owner, is the grandson of one of those cousins. There are a lot of Roger Casements. There might have a family name. I have to say, after 1916, there weren't too many Casements <laughs> called Roger. Patrick and his wife, Anne, show me around. There are also plants in Glasnevin. Yes. Sir I Roger think, brought back. For yes, in, in the botanical gardens. Yes, I had forgotten that. Yeah. Shortly after marrying Patrick, Anne became aware of the significance of the Casement name. They were living in Kerry in the 1970s, and her husband had to sign his surname on a cheque. What happened next showed her that there was still some local shame over the fact that Casement had been caught in Kerry, that local rebels had failed to spring him from police custody, and that other locals had helped the prosecution at his trial. We went to Chalee to buy a car, and Paddy wrote a cheque and signed a cheque for the sum that we'd been asked for. And when we presented the cheque to the garage owner, he said, I can't take your cheque. And we replied, yes, you can, of course you can. The, the, there's plenty of money in the account. The cheque won't bounce. Don't worry about it. Just please accept the cheque because we really need the car. And he said, I can't. And, I, and we said, well, why? He said, because of Sir Roger. What he was implying was that he felt a sort of sense of guilt on behalf of the community in Tralee, the way they had let Sir Roger down. This guy didn't want to take a cheque from a casement. This, this is the library in here. Um, I mean, most of the books, if you look at them, are at least 100 years old anyway. It's kind of amazing to be in the house where he read so many of those books. Also visiting the casement house in Ballycastle with me is the historian and casement scholar, Margaret O'Callaghan. We know from the poems that he wrote when he was 16, 17, 18 that he's quite well read in Irish history. 2nd of June, read Irish magazines today. During the night, I dreamed a splendid plot of a novel. Got up at 3am and sketched it out. Nina, his sister, talks about them, you know, being very conscious of the slaughter on Rathlin Island during the Elizabethan period. We know that he's interested in the land war. We know that he kind of follows contemporary politics. So, um... This, this is the hall. So this was built in 1874. Although he had lived in this big country house, Roger himself was relatively poor. So when he left school at 16, he needed a job. That took him to Liverpool, to a shipping company. And that took him, at the age of 20, to Africa. We have an atlas in next door and it shows Africa. And the whole thing, the entire interior, is just white, blank. I mean, there are explorers, there is a place on Earth to explore. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go to space, you can go into the interior of Africa. I got no monkey or live thing for Dublin Zoo, I'm sorry to say, although I had you always in my mind, but the difficulty of travelling with monkeys is great. This chest of drawers that we have here, this came from Sir Roger, OK, and he acquired it in Angola. 
I wonder if you would care for some Central African, uh, Congo, curiosities for the museum. I'm just back from that part of the world. There's a, an extraordinary throwing knife at the back of that drawer there, which he brought back. We're pretty sure it's been uh, sourced to the northern Congo. It's an extraordinary shape. It's like a side that has it is a dagger coming out of it. The multiplicity of blades on it. it was a, I mean, effectively for hunting for small antelope or something like that. But it was also used in tribal conflict. It was the age of European empires scrambling to carve up Africa, and a young Roger Casement was an enthusiastic believer in the British imperial mission. We held a memorial service for Queen Victoria in the mission church. Now that the great old lady is gone, one realizes how vast was her place, not only in the history of our country, but even in the daily lives of each of us. I cannot think of an England without the Queen. Margaret O'Callaghan, Caseman Scholar. He sees it all as a benign way of improving Africa. You know, he's fairly typical of his generation and background. Always remember that they are only children. Never promise them anything that you or the government are unable to give them, and never threaten them with any punishment that you cannot enforce. And they were not slow to enforce punishment. In a letter from 1886, a colonial administrator describes leading a punishment mission to a local village on which the village chief was killed and, he wrote to his boss, about ten others. I fancy the state will keep it quiet, he said. Amongst his party was Roger Casement. Did Casement go on other such missions? Was he ashamed of his role? Well, by the standards of the day, that was part of the job, nothing to be ashamed of. But there was another side to Casement, one that was considered shameful. And he recorded this in his diaries, the so-called Black Diaries, which would later contribute to his death. So these, just tell me what these are, these photocopies here. Just a fairly standard diary, but unlike most... And one of the experts on those diaries is, surprisingly, a unionist politician, Geoffrey Dudgeon. I could see a lot of myself in Casement. I mean, I had a sort of radical phase... He shares with Casement the fact that he grew up gay in Northern Ireland when being gay was... It's a crime that wasn't spoken about amongst Christians. The idea of saying to someone you're gay was impossible, next to impossible. It was something so awful that you froze internally. To be gay was the worst thing in the world. You could be a murderer and your parents or family or community would forgive you or understand you. But the only time that you broke the code of silence was if there was a sexual... I mean, I did once or twice because I fancied a friend so much I just had to... Like, you couldn't make a pass at them and you might get punched. So you had to verbalise it and indicate that you were gay. In verbalising it, you had to use a, a sort of coded language. Uh, do you mind me telling you something about myself or some phrase like that? Or I've got something to tell you. Can you cope? Caseman's sexual encounters weren't so fraught, at least the ones he wrote about in his diaries. They were transactional affairs, on the streets and back alleys, like this one he writes about in the capital of Madeira. 28th of February, arrived into Funchal at 7.30, then I went to the square, got two offers, one doubtful, <laughs> the other got cigarettes, 
unlike most people, he kept a diary all year long. And so it's full of little mundane details and also sexual mentions. 13th of March, Friday, Augustino. Kissed many times. Four dollars. What he often did was on the way to Congo, he had to go down the West African coast and he made sure he stopped at the Canaries in Madeira. And they were often quite sexual those days in Canary Islands, not, not unlike today. So there was a fair amount of cruising and a bit of gambling casinos as well. 20th of March, Friday, Las Palmas. No offers, save one that ran. Why within that does he, do you, does one keep a sex diary? Well, people did keep diaries in those days. That's the first fact. It was, uh, it was not unusual. He had no other communication, significant intimate communication with other white men. And he also could never stop writing. Casement would have written on the back of a bus ticket. I write, write, write. 21st of March, Saturday. Unshaven about 21 or 22, gave him about 13 pesetas to meet again tomorrow. He acted out a very extensive and busy sexual life, incredibly busy, and wrote it all down, which was a bit of a blunder, really. One such blunder was a diary entry about a servant he met in Congo, and possibly groomed. The servant's name was Richard Coffey. 26th of September, Saturday. Coffey at last. Richard Coffey took... Years later, when his work in Africa would give him a chance to avoid the gallows, this particular entry would be used against him. He would be foiled by his pen. And he said, yes, true massa, a big one, and I swear God, sir. Casement's work in Africa varied from building new railways to mapping and eventually to a position as British consul. But he gradually began to see through the improving veneer of colonialism to a dark heart underneath. I often met Lieutenant Frankie during 1886 and 1887 and twice saw him responsible for barbarous acts to natives. One was so cruelly flogged by this officer's direction and under his eyes that he was literally cut to pieces. I had to have him carried in my own hammock for over 50 miles to Boma to the state doctor. I was laughed at for my pains. These barbarous acts in Congo were largely to do with business. More than 18,000 people from the neighbouring Democratic Republic of the Congo have fled here to escape a bloody conflict. Today, Congo is in turmoil again, in part because it contains one of the world's great supplies of coltan, the mineral needed for mobile phones. In the late 1800s, the world had discovered rubber tyres. And one of the world's great supplies of rubber was in Congo. Congo wasn't a normal colony. It was a private colony owned by Leopold, King of Belgium, who had promised the other European nations to bring enlightenment and free trade to Congo. Instead, he brought slavery. He set up a local military run by Belgians and mercenaries and had them do more or less whatever they liked in order to maximise the production and export of rubber. The officer who issued the direction to purchase slaves was referred to by the natives by the subriquet he had earned, Wijima, 
were darkness. About this time, Roger Casement met a Polish riverboat captain in Congo named Joseph Conrad. Made the acquaintance of Mr. Roger Casement, which I should consider as a great pleasure under any circumstances, and now it becomes a positive piece of luck. Conrad stayed with Casement when he first arrived in Congo, and Casement told him stories of the things he had seen. Those stories impacted deeply on Conrad. He could tell you things, things I have tried to forget, things I never did know. And he likely remembered them later. When writing a short novel about his experience in Congo, these are the words of his narrator. The conquest of the earth, which mostly means taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. It seems likely that Casement would have told Conrad a story about an earlier journey he took of the River Congo. In August 87, I was travelling on a small steamer up the Congo. Conrad would later write a story about a journey on a small steamer up the Congo. One of the other passengers was a fellow called Captain van Kerkhoven. The story was about a Belgian colonial officer named Kurtz running an isolated trading outpost. He told me that he had paid his cannibal soldiers five brass rods per human head they brought. In the story, Kurtz has gone mad and has his men bring him a collection of human heads. There it was, black, dried, sunken, with closed eyelids, a head that seemed to sleep at the top of that pole. Conrad's Heart of Darkness would become one of the most influential novels in English, inspiring the film Apocalypse Now, in which Marlon Brando plays a renegade American officer in Vietnam called Kurtz. In the book, the narrator just took one trip. Casement would soon take a second trip on a steamer up the Congo River and travel further into his own heart of darkness. Lost in a romance Wilderness of pain And all the children Are That second trip up the Congo River came about because of the work of a journalist named Morell, who had earlier been a clerk. I was working for a Liverpool shipping company. They had the contract for shipping with the Congo Free State. While going through the books in the shipping company, Morell had made an important discovery about Congo. I gradually realised that the ships leaving Antwerp for the Congo carried barely any commercial goods. They carried mostly ammunition and guns, but the ships returning were full of rubber and ivory. But the Congo was supposed to be a free trade zone. So what was the trade? What were the natives being paid for all the rubber and ivory? 
it became clear they weren't being paid at all. The only thing that could explain it was forced labour. Morel quit his job and became a campaigning journalist. It must be bad enough to stumble upon a murder. But I stumble upon a secret society of murderers with a king for a henchman. Morel was such a successful campaigner that he managed to get the Belgian king's treatment of the Congolese debated in the House of Commons. It was decided to send somebody to investigate the situation in Congo. That someone was Roger Casement. They want me to go to the interior as soon as possible and send reports soon. I've hired a steamer, the SS Henry Reed, from the American Baptist Missionary Union. On this journey up the Congo River, Roger Casement found a country that had been totally changed by the rubber industry. In Ganda, I remember it now as a fine village in 1887. Now it has about 20 huts and not a hundred people. Desolate and dead. 22nd of August, Saturday, Bolongo, quite dead. I remember it well in 1887. It was full of people then. Now there are 14 adults, all told. People are wretched. Sunday the 30th of August. 16 men, women and children were tied up. Infamous. The children were let go at my intervention. Infamous. Shameful system. Visited Bokoti and then Nkaka. Took copious notes from the natives. They are cruelly flogged for being late with the baskets. These are baskets that they collected rubber into in the Congo, and he brought them... Back in the Casement family home in Ballycastle, County Antrim, Patrick Casement takes out two of the baskets that Roger Casement brought back from Congo in 1903. This is probably what a child was expected to collect rubber in. They tapped the tree and the latex ran down into a sort of ball of latex that came out of the tree. It's the sap of the tree. And they must have just gathered it up, rolled it into a ball and pushed it into the basket. So yeah, they've got labels on their travel labels, I guess, um, on his Britannic Majesty's service or Casement Esquire, British British Consulate. Thursday the 13th of August. Five people with hands cut off from the Bikoro side had come as far as Enyange intending to show me. Poor souls. It was effectively slave labour, one gathered, and if they tried to do anything to, to protest or to run away, they were hunted down and maimed um, if they were lucky, and if they weren't, they were killed, I think. Yeah. Uh, the shocking stories of beatings and then cutting off hands and, and limbs, appalling treatment. Um, it was just it was truly grim. The soldiers employed by King Leopold's regime were only given a limited number of cartridges for their guns. For everyone used, he must bring back a right hand. They came before me, bringing a small boy of not more than seven years of age, whose right hand was gone at the wrist. We had seen canoes returning from distant expeditions and with human hands dangling from a stick or in small baskets, being carried to the white man as proofs of their courage and devotion to duty. The people have told me repeatedly that the soldiers kill children When Casement says, the people have told me repeatedly, that's because rather than rely on village chiefs or white administrators, he went and interviewed the local Congolese face to face. I am rapidly ceasing to be a consul travelling in a foreign country. 
and I'm becoming a self-appointed criminal investigation department. <laughs> the Caseman scholar Geoffrey Dudgeon says that in the early 1900s, that was quite a radical approach. Geoffrey says that Caseman's empathy with all classes of people may have had something to do with being gay. Whatever prejudices you have, you put to one side more easily and you, if any sense of your superiority or authority you dispense with and you just can interact with people of all sorts and types. So that was part of a sort of gay sensibility. It's a secret thing. Because you know things that your colleagues don't know because you've been on the dark side of life or the underside of society, in a sense, because you've been an outlaw. My 39th birthday. I should take my motto from the second epistle of Paul to Timothy. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I'm very tired. I do not think I shall go again upriver. I have seen enough. My report will take time to complete. I have a great mass of statements and notes which require to be put into shape. When Caseman got back to London, he found himself becoming a humanitarian celebrity, a sort of Bob Geldof of his day. Morel, the campaigning journalist, had been feeding stories from Congo to the papers. Daily Mirror leader, Horrors of the Congo. British official finds terrible slavery in the Belgian state. Papers full of my Congo journey. But Casement was frustrated by the British government's response to his report. They insisted he remove names from it, which blunted its impact, and dragged their heels in following it up. Reading that report today, over a hundred years later, it's easy to see why he felt so strongly. The testimonies are profoundly shocking. If they're like that for Europeans to read, imagine how they look to someone from Congo. I just remember meeting white people when I was brought to hospital in primary school. This is Jean-Pierre Eyanga. He's a Congolese businessman and novelist, living in Ireland for the past 20 years or so, and has written about Casement. I asked him for his reaction to Casement's 1903 report, on his countrymen's treatment by the Belgians. He has recorded the evidence of a man called Moyo. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to have your reaction to that. Moyo's evidence. Ezalaki kozwa tango mususu mikolozomi potozwa ba panie tukumi bale ya. We had to go further and further into the forest to find the rubber vines. And our women had to give up cultivating the field and gardens. Then we starved. White beasts killed some of us and others got lost or died from exposure and starvation. We tried always going further into the forest. And when we failed, and our rubber was short, the soldiers came to our towns and killed us. Many were shot. Some had their ears cut off. Others were tied up with ropes around their necks and taken away. And you see, all these people didn't accept the situation. A lot of them resisted, and they were killed. Entire villages disappeared. 
Maybe you ask me to read because, as a Congolese, it sounds great. But I'm not really proud of reading this, honestly. It's a tragedy of my ancestors. I don't want this reading be taken as something I'm proud of. Okay? Because this is a piece of sad history of my country. I want you to underline that. These are just a whole lot of Sir Roger's letters um, from, I mean, they're completely mixed up here. Underneath is actually the West Africa Mail and a report in there about his 1903 report in there. Casement realised that his own work alone would change nothing in Congo and nor would occasional articles in the paper. He advised Morel to set up a protest group to keep pressure on the British government and through it on Leopold. We have been attacking the Congo regime as individuals, me through my consular work, you through your journalism. But the defenders of that regime are banded together, with a country behind them, Belgium, and a king at their head. The Congo evil is systematic, and to defeat it we will have to be systematic. An organisation is going to have to be founded. With Casement's help, Morel set up the Congo Reform Association, which became a prototype for the human rights organisations of today, like Amnesty. Morel described Casement as obsessed. Casement talked Congo into the small hours. He talked on, and with now and again a pause, when he would break off the narrative and murmur under his breath, poor people, poor, poor people. With Casement contributing from the sidelines, Morel steered the association to success. By 1908, Leopold was forced to cede control of Congo to Belgium, which, by the standards of the time, was a major improvement. By 1912, Morel and Casement considered the association's work done, and it was dissolved. By then, though, Casement's journey had taken a very different path. Casement scholar Margaret O'Callaghan says that Casement drew a connection between what was happening to Congolese culture under the Belgians and what had been happening to Irish culture under the British. He's horrified by the idea that a civilization can be wiped out, it can leave no trace, it can leave no record after it. He sees himself as being a witness. Because the colonization oh, uh, He says in a hundred years Africa will still be Africa, but Ireland will not continue to be Ireland unless it is redeemed. I mean, I think he becomes much more overtly interested in Irish nationalism on the back of some of the things that he's seen in Africa. Though he had continued to do British consular work and had done another investigation, this time in Brazil, Casement threw himself into Irish traditional culture, believing it crucial for the survival of Ireland. Patrick Casement. When I was a teenager, I was camping on Rathlin, and uh, while I was there, I met a, a man, in, probably in his 70s at the time, who could remember... Sir Roger coming to the island and walking the length of the island and coming back carrying a spinning wheel that he'd found in a ruined cottage at the western end of the island and he wanted to find out who owned it so that he could buy it and take it away with him and I mean the, the, the islanders told him that there were no owners the people had long gone and told him just to take it with him and he did. He was also involved in organising a local fesh. The Rathlin Islanders all wanted to come to the Fesh and they couldn't work out how they were going to get there and he chartered a boat for them. And the boatman discovered that it was to bring the people from Rathlin 
and he told him that he wouldn't do it. I, mean, I guess he was a good unionist and, and didn't approve of the whole fish thing, the, the, the boat owner. So he had to go and find another boat. Anyway, he met them from the boat in Cushendall, and they marched to the field where they were holding the fish with him at the head of the people of Rathlin. As he immerses himself in Irish culture, he also gets involved in nationalist politics. He spent a whole year travelling around Ireland recruiting people for the volunteers, and the family were strongly unionist, so I think that would have been a cause for some friction at that time. And then, of course, he went in 1914, he went to America, was very involved with the, the, the sort of Irish nationalist movement in America, and went straight from there to Germany. And, you know, once he'd gone there, he was completely taboo. One of the reasons he was taboo, of course, was because while he was trying to get help for an Irish rebellion in Germany, his casement cousins were fighting for Britain against Germany. Yet the casement family didn't give up on Sir Roger. Letter number 3290. Name, Sir R. Casement. Roger wrote to them from prison, a letter it must have been difficult to write. This is official prison writing paper. It's the summer of 1916. Casement is in prison, charged with treason for working with Germany, and yet his family contributes to his defence fund. I heard yesterday of an act of kindness of yours that I much appreciate, which I think shows a very good heart. I know quite well how you feel on the points where we differ so profoundly, so I can appreciate all the more your action and the real good feeling that prompted it. I pray the boys may all come home to you safe and sound when peace comes and that you may have, still have, many happy days with them. At his trial for treason, the odds were stacked against Casement. But his lawyers thought they spotted a loophole. The law relating to treason dated from the 1300s, and its meaning wasn't clear. The legal argument centred on whether the key sentence contained a comma or not. If it didn't, it would imply that treason could only be committed by aiding the enemy on British soil. And Casement could have been acquitted. The original scrolls were examined. They found something that looked like a comma, but may have been just a smudge. Eventually, the court found against Casement. The law had a comma. He had committed treason. He was sentenced to be hanged. Hence the saying, he was hanged on a comma. Casement languished in prison, awaiting his execution. But he was far from forgotten. He had been a British hero. And many of those who worked with him in the Congo campaign were moved by his plight and called for clemency. Though Joseph Conrad was not one of them, he was disgusted by Casement's betrayal. And then the British authorities found Casement's diaries. They countered the clemency campaign with a smear campaign, showing sex extracts from the diaries to key individuals. One of these was a missionary Casement had known in Congo, who believed the diaries were forged and was invited in to view them. He recognised the name of someone from Congo in the diary and realised it must be authentic. It's thought that person was likely the servant, Richard Coffey. 26th of September, Saturday. Coffee at last. The clemency campaign collapsed. I kind of had a lucky break 
when I was in the archive, but I found this file and it appeared to have been written by Casement within a few weeks of his death. And he's kind of talks about whether he'll be remembered or forgotten. And it's, I just found it really moving. I was just reading this material. I started crying. I made awful mistakes and did heaps of things wrong. Confused much and failed at much. But I very near came to doing some big things on the Congo and elsewhere. Roger Casement was executed on August the 3rd, 1916. Over time, he would have two graves, neither of which was the one he wished for. He was buried first in Quicklime in Pentonville Prison, and then in 1965 he was exhumed and handed back and buried in Glasnevin with full military honours. Patrick Casement remembers that his grandparents were invited to the ceremony. It would have nothing to do with it. And my parents were very much the same. My mother still, she says, oh, what's all the fuss about this man? You know, she doesn't, that man, you know, she doesn't have any sense of what he achieved and what he did. It's all about the disgrace. She always does say, that man. <laughs> and when she, she can say it in a much more meaning way than I do. <laughs> If you were locked in a cell in a, in a prison in London and all you had to do really was just count the days till your execution and you weren't going to get out again and you were trying to think of somewhere that was the opposite to that, I think this could be it. A place called Merlock Bay. But it's incredibly lonely and the sea, of course, he spent so much of his life on the sea, at sea, he said he wanted to be buried here at a tiny cove cut out of the rock on the North Antrim coast facing Rathlin Island, looking over to Scotland. He wasn't buried here and he's not able to be buried here because the deal made between the Dublin and London governments was that they would give him back as long as we didn't bring him north. Still, Roger Casement's bones are too contentious. So his body's not here, but maybe his spirit is. 